In chapter 7 of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about his struggle with sin. He says that he does what he does not want to do, and he does not do what he wants to do. If you have the same struggle, then you'll want to stay with us as we deal with this issue and many others. Welcome you to another edition of the Question and Answer Program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who gives us the benefit of his insights into the Word of God. This program is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. We begin our program with a question from a listener in Tyler, Texas. He writes, Can a converted, divorced, and remarried man ever serve as an elder in the church according to 1 Timothy 3? Our church has struggled with this issue for some time, and it seems that this controversy has been the cause of its lack of blessing. And I'll be very frank with you. I don't think you can make that dogmatic statement from 1 Timothy, the third chapter. I believe that it says a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, and so on, ruleth well his own house. The party says, the reason I'm asking this question is because of a local problem in an independent Bible church, and one which has caused a difference of opinion among its members for a number of years, and may be the cause of its lack of blessing. And I'm sure that you're accurate about that, because many a church today is being held back and hindered because there is a conflict in the church on matters like this. And frankly, to begin with, they should be settled. And they should be settled in, I think, not only a Christian way, but a biblical way. And a biblical way would be the Christian way. Now, when you ask just the naked question, can a converted divorced and remarried man ever serve as an elder in the local assembly. I would have to go back and find out the basis of divorce. Why did he get a divorce or why did his wife get a divorce? And if there was a scriptural basis for that, if she had proven unfaithful or something like that, I would say that he would be able to remarry. Now, I do believe this, and I have advised several men in the churches I've served. I remember two men in particular. Both of these men had been married and divorced. One man, it was his wife that had been divorced. And I, knowing both cases, knew that there were scriptural grounds for it. And these two men were, I would say, the two most capable men that we had in the church. They had more ability. They had more spirituality. They had more understanding of the Word of God. They would be better teachers. They would meet all the other qualifications there, and yet we had some elders that they couldn't measure up to some of these other things. They certainly didn't have good behavior, and they were not apt to teach. 
And one of them was a very greedy man, very grasping man in his business. Another one was a brawler. And people that never took those things into consideration. But here are two men that I think could have been officers of the church. And they talked to me about it. They'd been asked to have their names put up. And I told them, I said, I would be for you. But I said, you know that in this church there would be those that are not very loving and not very gracious and not very scriptural, to tell the truth. And they would make a big hassle about you becoming an officer, even putting up your name. Now I said, if you want to go through that, I'll go through it with you because I think that you're on scriptural grounds. And both of the men said that they would not cause the problem in the church. Now, my feeling is that if there is a man that is an officer in the church and he finds out that there are a group of people that feel like, and they may be wrong, but it's causing controversy, and the thing for him to do would be to quietly withdraw and not cause the controversy because there will be no blessing for the church. That's certainly true. And we have seen in our day God judge certain churches because of their ungracious, bigoted attitude. And so my feeling is here that it would be a wonderful gesture on the part of this man if he would withdraw. But I'm quick to say that I believe that the crowd that is finding fault with him, they'd find something else. They generally do because these people want to fight everything but the devil, and they certainly don't want to fight him because it looks to me like they're on his side most of the time. Well, I'm going on to another question because that one is a controversial question in many churches today, and many churches are being hindered because of this issue. And it's not always the man that got the divorce. I know that to be true. It's sometimes unlovely church members who think they are spiritual. Our next question is from a listener in Oxon Hill, Maryland. It reads, Do you think God agrees with a couple who uses birth control? So you can see that the questions today are really controversial. Now, I don't mind plowing into them, especially in these days when these things are being taught. I'm sure that God is not for a family having children that they cannot support. And there are many like that today. One of the curses of our system is that on relief and welfare, there are folk with a house full of kids and they just keep bringing them in the world. I think that actually is sinful. And therefore, I believe that a couple have a perfect right if their motive is an honorable motive. That is, they feel like that they could not support or take care of any more children in this day when there are many ways in which a family can be controlled and number can be controlled. I feel like that, especially with all these condominiums that are being built today, no place for children. I'm not sure, but what this is something that would be admissible. Now, I know a great many people are going to take issue with me, and they're going to tell about a grandpa and 
uh, grandma and the children they had. Well, I had grandparents also on both sides of the family, and they really had a house full of kids, let me tell you. On one side of the family, there must have been about 10, and on the other side, there must have been over a dozen. But these people lived on a plantation. That is, one family lived on a plantation. And they, they, they needed workers. And believe me, they had a house full of them. Although most of the boys all went to college and got away from the plantation as quick as they could. And the thing is, that was a different lifestyle in that day altogether. And I don't think that you can use that as being the norm today of these couples that live in the city in a condominium, and life is very restricted and getting more so. It looks to me like the middle class in America is being eliminated today. And what we're going to have is what you have in Europe and in other foreign countries is the very rich and the very poor, and there'll be no middle class. And it's the middle class that has made every great nation, that's been a great nation, that has made a contribution to the world. But it looks like today, in our nation especially, that that's the thing that's taking place. So I would have to say that these things are certainly permissible, and I think that if you're moving it away from the family, from a Christian couple, and I would not want what I'm saying to be applied to a single person, I think that would be entirely wrong. I'm talking now and answering the question for a married couple that are Christian. And apparently, this question of a big family today is a real serious question with many. Moving on, we come to a question from Santa Clara, California. The listener writes, Is working on Sundays biblically wrong? And the answer is no. Somebody says, Why? Don't you think that we ought not to work on Sunday? And I worked on Sundays for many years, and I worked hard on Sundays. I was a pastor. I preached two and three times every Sunday, and sometimes more than that. And that's hard work, and I worked on Sunday. And I don't know why people think that when a preacher's up preaching, he's not working. And, of course, back of that sermon is a lot of preparation also. At least there ought to be. Sometimes I'd wonder about that. But my feeling is that you've got a job where it's required of you to work on Sunday. Now, I think that your spiritual life is going to suffer because of that. Therefore, I would urge you to listen to the Through the Bible radio program. I honestly, and I'm saying that half facetiously, but also have seriously. I think that you need some spiritual help to compensate for that. I used to have a railroad man. He was an engineer on the Southern that went out of Atlanta, Georgia. And he was a member of the little mission church I had. And he missed a great many Sundays. He had a Bible chained on his engine, and he'd hook it up there, every time he'd make a run. And on Sunday, he always had a time of reading the Word of God, time of prayer, and always 
when he got back, he made up for it. He always came to extra services that we had, and he was a very busy man. He had a small farm, and it kept him very busy, but he always saw to it that he gave the Lord that time. So I can see nothing wrong in that. Now let's turn our attention to a question from a listener in North Tonawanda, New York. The person writes, Genesis 32, verse 24, is one of those passages you have explained that speaks about the pre-incarnate Christ. After reading your comments and your edited messages of Genesis on this verse, I still do not understand the evidence for believing that this passage speaks about the pre-incarnate Christ. Could you please explain this issue in greater detail? Well, may I say to you that I frankly gave you about all that I'm able to give in my book on Genesis. I attempted there to marshal all the arguments I could because I do believe that is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, Genesis 32, 24 reads like this, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Well, first of all, let me say that it is quite obvious that this man that wrestled with him is supernatural. And we know that in the Old Testament that the Lord Jesus Christ apparently appeared many times as the angel of the Lord. And here we have that. He appeared to Joshua before they crossed over the Jordan River. You have many other instances of that. And here, what God is trying to do is to get this man Jacob to yield to him. This man, all the way through his life, he was a self-willed man. And he felt like that he was clever enough. He's like a great many folk today, that they feel like that they are clever enough, smart enough, and they don't need God in their lives at all, either here or hereafter. I'm not sure, but what that is the condition in the nation Israel today, that the sons of Jacob there today, and that's the thing I noted this time, is that there's no turning to God to solve their problems, that they feel like by their own manipulation, their own ability, that they're able to do that. And what you have in this case here is that God is trying to get this man to yield and that the manifestation of God in the Old Testament like this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And at least, let me say this, and this might be helpful to you, it's a supernatural person that is wrestling with this man, Jacob. And if you are not prepared to accept it as the pre-incarnate, you'd have to say that. Because as you read this, why you come to the conclusion, because he said, and he said unto him, what's thy name? He said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with man and hast prevailed. He prevailed by losing. God had to break his leg here to get him, but he did get him. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called 
the name of the place, Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Now, Jacob recognized he was wrestling with a supernatural person. Now, may I say to you that that is about all that we could say, and I actually said more than that in my book in Genesis, and I do not know how to add any more to that. I think that the only way you could accept it, of course, would be by faith, but I do believe there's enough evidence there for it because faith rests always upon evidence. Here's another question from a different listener in Los Angeles. It reads, During the Great Tribulation period, when does Russia come down into Palestine? May I say that the fitting in of Russia into these closing days of this age has always created a problem. And as a result, there's been quite a difference of opinion. I think that I have in my files the statement from uh, different men, and they present six different times as to when the nation of Gog and Magog will come down upon Palestine. Therefore, where a great many good men have differed, I hesitate to speak in the sense of being dogmatic. And I can only tell you what light I have on the subject and what I believe. And, of course, I could be entirely wrong on this matter. Now, my opinion is that during the Great Tribulation period, that the first part of that period we are going to see the West come into prominence, what is commonly called the revived Roman Empire. And again, I do not like that term. I really think that the Antichrist will put back together again the Roman Empire that fell apart. It's still in existence. It just needs a man big enough to put it back together again. And Europe, as you know, especially Western Europe, is looking for a leader. Look how France, this dark hour of desperation through which France passed, they had to turn to a man like General de Gaulle, who apparently was very unpopular with a great many people. You see, they need a strong man. They need a leader. And they want that. They crave that. And that leader will come along. He will be the Antichrist. And I take it that during the first part of the Great Tribulation period, you're going to see this man come into a position. And it's at that time he makes a covenant with God's people, and it's in the midst of the week that he breaks that covenant. And that apparently, the first part of it being a time of peace, and the last part, the time of the greatest warfare that this world has ever seen. Now, it's somewhere during the last three and a half year period that Russia will come down. I believe personally it's right at the very end that Russia is coming through. And when she finally breaks through, well, it'll be at the end. And then, in fact, there'll be no deliverance for Israel at that time with the West against them and with Russia coming down. And we're told that the Orient coming and the king of the south, so they're coming from every direction. And there is no help or deliverance for the nation Israel, humanly speaking. The nation is to be destroyed because any one enemy could do it and would do it. But it's at that time that apparently the Lord Jesus comes forth as the mighty deliverer. 
And it's one of the reasons I think that the prophets, so many of them, have so much to say about the deliverer. The deliverer shall come to Zion. That's the thing that Isaiah said. And the prophets emphasized that. They bore down upon that because that to them was the supreme thing that was to take place in the future, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's at that time Russia is to be destroyed, so they will have come down at some time previous to that, by the way. Our final question today is also from a listener in Los Angeles. He says, could you explain the meaning of Romans 7, verses 9 through 25? Well, that's quite a section there, and I think that I briefly can answer that for you. Now, what you have in this section of the 7th of Romans is apparently the personal experience of Paul the Apostle. Paul had, I think, three stages in his experience. The first stage, he was a proud Pharisee, self-satisfied. But yet down deep in his heart, he had a hunger and knew that he needed something but did not know what it was. Then he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, and he came to him. He had a marvelous conversion, in fact, a tremendous conversion. And then he attempted to live the Christian life in his own experience. Now, that is what is recorded here in this particular section. Then, of course, Paul came to the place where he turned his life over to the Holy Spirit, and what he couldn't do through the flesh, now the Holy Spirit was able to accomplish in his life. So that you have asked a question concerning the middle period in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, when he was converted, he received a new nature, and he did not lose his old nature. Those are two things that every Christian should keep before him, that he possesses an old nature and that he has a new nature. Now, there are two things that he should know, that one truth concerning each one of these natures, concerning the old nature, there is no good in it. Paul says that here in Romans 7, verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Paul discovered that there was no good in the old nature. Now, there was the new nature, and this new nature has no power. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He found there was no power in it. So that you have here in this section of Romans a struggle, a struggle between the old nature and the new nature. And Paul speaks of two eyes here, as if he's a dual personality, which, by the way, he was, and every Christian is today. For that which I do, that is, the old nature, I allow not. That is, the new nature doesn't permit it, but the old nature goes ahead and does it anyway. Do you know anything about that? I'm sure that every Christian today knows something about that that for the good that I would, the new nature, I do not. The old nature just bucks at it and holds back. But the evil which I would not, 
that is, that new nature won't commit sin, that I do in the old nature. So you see, Paul had going on within his own experience this tremendous struggle, a struggle, if you please, even unto death. And finally, he just had to say calf rope and cry out to God for deliverance. For he found out there's no good in the old nature, there's no power in the new nature. Are you like Paul once was? Do you struggle with your old nature, finding it difficult to live in the light of your new nature? Well, following Romans 7 is fortunately Romans 8, where Paul explains that it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit in us that we're able to live the Christian life. To help you understand how this can be applied to your life, Dr. McGee has a booklet explaining the 8th chapter of Romans called Living the Christian Life God's Way. If you'd like to have a copy of this booklet or a CD of this broadcast, contact one of our service operators by calling our offices or find more information at our online bookstore. Before we close, we want to remind you to join us on the Through the Bible program every Monday through Friday on this station. We'll continue Dr. McGee's five-year journey through the whole Word of God. We provide notes and outlines for these studies to everyone who asks to be on the mailing list. To get started, you can write, you can call, or subscribe to the electronic version of these items by going to our website. When you ask to be on the mailing list, you'll also receive our monthly newsletter, which gives you the news about the ongoing work here and around the world, and there's a lot going on. You'll also get a bookmark with the suggested reading for each day of the study, so you'll always know where you can read to be in sync with the study. To contact our offices, call 1-800-65-BIBLE Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time. Or write to Questions and Answers in the U.S. Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or find us online at ttb.org. This is Steve Schwetz for Through the Bible Radio with the prayer that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus made it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network.